Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Carter. And welcome back to you too, Chris. Indeed, yes. Diary mix-ups, train fires, all sorts of things kept us from recording last week. But thank you, David, for teeing up my interview with Keisha. Thanks also to the BASR, NAASR, and IAHR for being our fantastic sponsors. As ever. Well, not as ever, because some of them only joined recently. Yeah, but as ever in terms of our, our you know, our weeks. Uh, someone else who's joined recently is Dan Gorman, who's recorded this week's interview. Uh, so, big shout out to Dan. Welcome to the team. You've done a few interviews for us now that um, the listeners haven't yet heard. So, we're looking forward to drip feeding those out to you over the coming weeks. And we'll start with his interview with Douglas R. Brooks on studying Tantra from within and without. Let's hear it, Dan. Professor Brooks, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks for having me. Um, could you tell us briefly what drew you to the study of Hinduism, in particular Sanskrit literature? Mm. Because you were you went to Middlebury College, a place that you could be trained in any of many languages, and you chose one of the oldest and deadest. Uh, I didn't so much choose Sanskrit as Sanskrit chose me, uh, and the same. Uh, quickly followed up in the study of Tamil and other Indian languages. So I suppose it, it traces back to my interest in history in the ancient world and specifically in religion. Uh, I wasn't raised in a religious family, but and I think that that's always been a, an advantage to me in a certain way. I, I didn't have to undo a great deal. But I made myself religious as a child uh, of my own accord. So I, I suppose that that's itself a kind of peculiar character feature. I mean, what kind of a kid asks to go to church when his parents are not churchgoers at all? Um, anyway, I got over that, uh, um, and that being itself its, its own story. And then well, when I got to mid, I was just interested in, in history and the classics and particularly philosophy and political science and, and religion. Religion always struck me as still the subject that let you study all other subjects. So I suppose that was the real hook for me. You could, you could be interested in language, politics, art, music, linguistics. Everything in the study of religion just lets you study culture, lets you study history, all of the subjects. And I still think that as an undergraduate teacher, I think this is the department of the humanities. Uh, and I think that that's a fair assessment. So to get, to, and you can still, in that way, uh, India provided a perfect example, if only because everything about the Hindus uh, is, creates a history and, and a literature and a politics and the rest of it. So what really happened was uh, I took a class that introduced Hinduism and Buddhism from a really wonderful man who, as I look back on now, I see as a, as, as a very thorough scholar for a fellow who didn't have the languages, who by my own standards today would be uh, a well-meaning amateur in the sense of not having direct access. But he did a he did an excellent job, and and I I got hooked reading early Buddhism, and then 
particularly that the eclectic prose and verse Upanishads. And the literature just captivated me for its beauty and for its insight and for its cultural complexity and its depth. And I said to myself at 18 years old, if this is this interesting in these wooden, unreadable translations, how much better would it be if you could go after the real thing? I suppose I'm curious about access because I'm thinking of University of Chicago's publication now of the um, Bhagavad Gita, or excuse me, the Mahabharata in English. They're still not done with it. So how much material was available when <laughs> you were... nobody in... wants to do it. Uh, <laughs> so how much was available in the 1970s before computers? Well, the, you know, there was this amazing emergence of Indology at the end of the 19th century. And there are astonishing scholars of that era whose work we, we continue to rely on. Um, I mean, Maurice Bloomfield... Wilhelm Kaland, the, the, the material available in German and French and the early English scholarship is uh, astonishing degrees of erudition. Just don't even know how these guys learned that much about everything. Um, uh, they had their own issues of colonialism and sexism and, and their own parochialisms that came out of the era in which they first emerged. But the 19th century provided an enormous wellspring of philology and scholarship and, and commitment, very serious people. Uh, that carried on in the period between the wars uh, in Europe, which was also the period when American scholarship in Indology and the history of religions really took off. And because the history of religions as a kind of German phenomena, you know, Religionsgeschichte, Wissenschaft, that kind of, that kind of subject uh, invented in Europe, translated well here because of, uh, because we're pluralists and because we, we are almost by nature compelled to study religion uh, as, as a subject, which is still a rare subject in a, in a, European university. You find philology and you find history departments and you find other ways in which the subject is divvied up, but you don't really find religion departments. Um, and that, uh, that too was available at Middlebury. So there was a fair amount of, as I said, old wooden 19th century translation material. There's, uh, there was the, the material that was created in the space between the wars and then and then there really was a long hiatus until the 50s and the 60s when, when another generation came along and took up the work of that generation that was in fact trained before World War II. So my principal Sanskrit professor at Harvard, uh, Daniel Engels, uh, was a code breaker during the World War II. I mean, he was a, he was a Harvard undergraduate in the 30s. And I was studying with him in the 70s and 80s. The 80s, I suppose, was our, was our real time together, 79 to 86. He retired in 84. And so he came from a different era. Like, he came from a whole different world. 
Uh, he came from, a, a, uh, and, and, and then what happened in the sixties and seventies kind of reshaped me because I came out of that rebellious world of looking for alternative voices and subversive models and other kinds of, of how do you discover yourself questions which were very much not still not part of my history of religions program. Like let me say one more thing about that. Like when I entered the doctoral program at Harvard, I guess that was 81 after my first master's, you know, I graduated the divinity school and you had to reapply and then get into the doctoral program there. Um, the expectation was that we were Christians or that we were Jewish and that we were studying these other religions and the comparative study of religion meant that you were a committed religious person of your own Western persuasion, and that these were the subjects you studied. It hadn't occurred to the directors of that program that any of us had what they would call gone native, or that we weren't particularly avowed or created by our own Western religions. We weren't using that as our as as our home base or our focal point for the study of religion. And, and yet that was still very much the model. You know, I, my secondary field in the study and the comparative study of religion, when I passed my general examinations at Harvard was Christianity, which had long been since past being any of any personal connection to me. Well, and that brings me to, Dr. Sundara Murthy, if I'm saying his name correctly. Yeah, I said it perfectly. So I arrived in India in 1977 on the University of Wisconsin's college year program, um, looking for the wonder that was India, romantically still very much a seeker, like almost a didn't know that I was seeking Hinduism, but I was seeking those sources and those ideas and commitments. And I, before I, I met Dr. Sundara Murthy, I'd, I, I, I tumbled uh, um, down that flight of stairs that makes you realize that, that you, had, you missed everything, like that this was over, that the wonder that I had romanticized and created this ancient India, and I had kind of worked through this, this vision of what I thought it would be or could be. And I arrived there, and it was 1977, and... Um, and it, it and from the from the standpoint of that romanticized vision, that party was over. Uh, now I was blessed because I came late enough into the East Comes West story to miss the Beatles. Does that make sense? Like yes, I, I, I didn't really get the Hare Krishna Beatles bug. I didn't get caught up in one of the Swamis coming west. Uh, any Maharishi, Muktananda, that wasn't my gig. I was too young for that, and I wasn't going that way. None of that ever seemed to be the real thing that I was looking for. So when I went to India looking for the real thing, rather than some distilled version of of hippie culture, I wasn't averse to that, just wasn't what I wanted for myself. I got to India, and it didn't seem to be there anymore. It seemed to be long gone. India was definitely on... Uh, its own mission of self, of cultural, of economic development, but it had culturally sort of decided not to do that, uh, go in that direction. Every, every kid I knew or met was going 
was studying medicine or engineering. I mean, they were headed into the, they were headed into our world. They were headed into first world global consumerist science and medicine. And you can still see that in diaspora Indian communities. That's where, that's where the energy still is in education. So there wasn't this rich, deep academic culture of the study of India in India. That's not what you found. And then out in the temples or out in the liturgical worlds or in the practitional worlds or in people's religious lives, you didn't really find that that level of scholarship or that level of, of uh, deep, erudite commitment that I had kind of romanticized and hoped for. And then uh, at my wit's end, uh, with really very little other recourse, uh, I was introduced to Dr. Sundamurti, who was a reader and chair of the Sanskrit department at Madurai University. He was eventually elevated to professor. And, and while, and he actually was that character I was looking for, uh, because he, he had this, he had, he had a serious academic training that traversed through Indian universities and Oxford and other places where his work had been reviewed and he had done, he had learned his subject. He was a, a linguist and a comparativist. His, his English was elevated, immaculate, really. Um, but he had also been raised in a, an, an ultra-Orthodox Brahmin family. So his heritage was was the stewardship of a tradition of Sanskrit erudition and Tamil culture. He was just as magnificent in Tamil as he was in Sanskrit. Um, and yet he also had the capacities and the training of Western scholarship. So, and, and meeting him was, again, just pretty much serendipity. Like, I walked in and met the right guy at the right time. If I had, he had just, in fact, returned from a long stint in Malaysia and Singapore working at the university in Kuala Lumpur. If I had come a year earlier, he wouldn't have been there. So I just got lucky. I mean, uh, and then as those years moved on, I was supposed to spend nine months. I spent two years. Um, and as I, as our studies moved on, he was the one who encouraged me to go to Harvard and, and to continue my doctoral work and my more advanced work here and then go back and study with him. And which is what I did. And then when I won the Fulbright in 84, that was technically my Fulbright year, uh, I wrote a, a PhD proposal that for the, for the grant that I won before the professorial committee approved my proposal. So I had the Fulbright to write my PhD before the professorial committee had given me approval and I got and I applied <laughs> and actually won the grant before I passed my general exams for the PhD. And the grant essentially landed on Dr. Sundamorti's desk. So I was paid to go home. Uh, and then, and then I had leveraged the situation so that what were they going to do? Like say, Oh no, we're not going to approve your PhD dissertation proposal. Uh, even though you already have the grant. So I had the Fulbright uh, Fellowship, and 
and got to go back to Madurai to live in my teacher's house to become a fellow of the Department of Sanskrit at the university where he was the chair of the department. How did that introduce you to the study of yoga, though? Well, the study of yoga is the study of India, as far as I can tell. Uh, It's what most of your books are about. Well, most of my books are about the intersections of, of the medieval traditions of the rise of esoteric yoga, the tantric traditions, especially the goddess traditions, and those particular peculiar formulations that involve the Brahmins in South India and other ways in which it anthropologically took hold. But what living in Sundramurti's house did and spending all of those years in India did is it gave me it gave me immersion in language and culture. I got essentially the training of an anthropologist, uh, both in a, in a kind of formal fieldwork sense, but also, uh, but also the company of a gifted comparative linguist and philologist. So I got a classical education and a, and a, and a fieldwork education at the same time. When you spend that much time in India, you, you see uh, that correlation between sources and texts and history and living traditions. And I was particularly interested in the kind of historical tradition that you couldn't understand without a living tradition. There's no penetrating tantric lore and texts and prescription and liturgy and and philosophy and what they call yoga without meeting someone who can tell you what the books are saying and finding out what it looks like. You don't you don't study tantric liturgies of complex yogic rituals without learning it from someone who can do those rituals. It's impossible. It's just that was that was always my ace in the hall was that you know the, the the book says this, but I know what that looks like. I mean, I've seen I've seen that performed in more than one place by more than one person in more than one way. But when you say performed, are we talking? We're not just talking about the the exercise aspect of yoga. It's no, 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 no. That, you mean what we call yoga today in the West? There's much more to it. Oh no, 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 no. That I don't even refer. Like uh, let's 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 talk about that for a second. That what we call yoga today in the West is. And, and is now a meme. It now has a life of its own. It's a it's a phenomena of of gyms and yoga studios and 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 morning TV exercise shows. That is a whole separate history from from the history of that that I would have considered yoga until twenty years ago. Um, those characters that that brought, invented, co opted the word yoga to mean postures. And the and and exercise and the somatic engagement that that happens on mats or happens in in asana in posture that uh, that's a, that's a that that's in fact not really my subject at all. Um, I don't really know much about that. I don't really follow that transmission of that material to the West. Like I had to learn that. Um, much, much later in my career. You know, who were these guys who, you know, what's the history of what we call yoga today, like yoga asana? There are people who write about that, um, who, 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 uh, who, who've taken that up as, as their academic subject. That's just something that happened while I was there. And characters like Krishnamacharya and 
and Patabi Joyce and BKS Iyengar, who's a famous name and all of that. Those, those guys were largely still in Pune or in Madras when I was studying in India. Then they kind of brought their stuff to the West. And then you get people like and John Friend. And John all these Friend and, and Rodney Yee and Francois Raoul. These were all guys who studied with Iyengar in Pune. They're in Pune, you know, doing asana yoga with Iyengar. When I was in Madurai, studying Tantra and learning Sanskrit and speaking Tamil, uh, we were we had nothing to do with it. Like that, that world had nothing to do with my world. So, to in me, your world, what is yoga? Yoga was the the practical esoteric methodologies of applied religion. Uh, I mean, if if yoga meant meant engagement, it meant application. It meant method. It meant, and in that sense, it meant the study of how to take ideas, values, insights, claims, and apply them somatically, cognitively, emotionally. How to put them? How to put them into action in or, or into your life? That would apply to ritual, to study, to mythology, to esoteric practices. That's what yoga was. Yoga is the application. Of these, of this visionary, philosophical, religiously encoded, symbolic world into practice, and the practice would be somatic and cognitive and ethical and practical in terms of living your life. And mo- most of that was learned textually, contemplatively, and ritually. And there is a. You mentioned earlier pluralism. What you're describing to me with different ways of living, there is a pluralistic component there. Well, because yoga means application, there were Buddhist yogas and Hindu yogas and Jain yogas and Sikh yogas. Everybody's using the word. And they're all, in effect, using the word in some sense to mean this is what we do and this is how we do it. And the it on the other end of that is what we think, what we believe, what we conjure to be possible in bodies and what are our cognitive, spiritual, intellectual goals? How do we organize our lives? What's the practical implications of, of if we have these stories and rituals and practices, how does that then change our everyday life? How do we live? How do we go about our ordinary lives, our moral lives, our intellectual lives? That was what so yoga applied in every religion in India. It was, it was just the word people used for method, application, how we do what we do, how we engage, how we connect. And yet you spend a significant amount of time now doing public engagement with, uh, pe- with people who may not know the scholarly issues you and I have been discussing. Oh, no, none of it. Uh, I mean, I, the vast majority of people who are sort of my weekend job are, um, are people who got introduced to yoga simply as asana. Now, that's changing, too, because over the last 15 years of that, I would say um, 20 years ago, yoga was nowhere near the sort of simple mainstream place it factors into our kind of contemporary society. I mean, I call it aisle 11A now. When you go to the Wegmans grocery store in Rochester, yoga is in aisle 11A. It's like outdoor goods, seasonal yoga you know like so how much more mainstream can you get it's not even in the gym it's in the grocery store right so most of the people i meet who do yoga came in through that way they came in through a yoga studio or a gym 
practicing asana. What happened 15 or 20 years ago is that that same nascent crew, which was far from the mainstream, was still interested in things Indian. They were still interested in what I, that old sense of all the meanings of the word yoga. Now, they had no clue what that was about. And that's how I got involved. They were just curious. We do yoga. What's that? Well, you know, Niagara Falls. Like now that that's just that's gonna come tumbling over in 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 volumes of history and curiosities expressed in sources and texts and ideas. And somehow there's still some small segment of that population that still asks me that question. And so and their rooms are full such as it is, with people who, for whom yoga is, is just their asana practice. Like it's just, and that asana practice creates this, this surrogate community that often substitutes in our fragmented, secularized, less religious, less institutional world for the kinds of communities that even my parents' generation associated with the church or the Rotary Club or the Boy Scouts or or the or the Book of the Month Club or people go to yoga studios and they have they, since we don't have those other kinds of institutional pre-created structures for us, you know, you were you went to the church or your father was a mason or something. You they go there now, and so yoga studios. And these sorts of environments are not only places where they get their asana practices, which they're still principally interested in. It's where they meet their friends. It's where they meet like-minded people. It's where, and then they all say, well, what's yoga? And then some bright light says, well, we could have an event. You know, we could, we could ask somebody who knows about that. Professor Brooks, we're basically out of time, but if you could say briefly, you've mentioned your public work. What is your new scholarly project? If you have one. Oh yeah. So I've parlayed the two together because I've always thought that the vanity and sort of self-perpetuation of scholarship at a certain level is, 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 is just more and more of itself. It, it really does very little good for the world in a certain way. So, and I came from, I came from an environment where we wanted to do something in the world. We wanted to build schools. We wanted to help people. We wanted to give people in India a chance to study their culture or to have a good life or to get an education, very simple kinds of things. So I took this out of university environment of learning uh, and parlayed that into opportunities to take people to India. And then two pieces happened. The first is they get a great experience and we do things like build schools and send children to to school and take care of folks. That's the simple way of putting it. But also that means that I get to spend a great deal of time on the ground in India. So I've got, so my new projects have to do with an extension of the goddess traditions that I was working on in the eighties. In and now I'm focused on the furtherance of that mythology as it takes place in pilgrimage in South India. So there are these, these whole seasons of tens of thousands of people on the road, especially in Tamil Nadu, who are going to Shiva temples and Ganesha temples and Muruga temples, and then to this character named Ayapa. And I'm following all of those pilgrim paths and tracing 
history, language, sources, philosophy, literature, into the anthropology of the practices of pilgrimage. Professor Brooks, thank you for your time. Thanks. And thanks, uh, pleasant voyages. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Dan. Wonderful to have you on board. And David, um, wonderful to have you back in the city. Um, we did that wonderful preview of the uh, the Millennialism Conference that you were at, um, but you got a few interviews for us there, didn't you? I did. Um, I recorded two interviews um, with Rob Gleave on Islamic Millennialism and one with uh, Susan Palmer, who's returning to the RSP and this time talking about children in new religious movements. Plus, we recorded... Uh, a video episode which I hope to have some more news about very soon um, and they'll be coming up uh, probably one or two of those at the end of this run because we'll be taking our usual summer break of course from the end of June and uh, one or two of those after the break when we return so okay. thanks uh, thanks to uh, Sen Sam for inviting us down yeah excellent and we've got quite a few written responses um to this week's podcast coming up so do check in over the coming days for those again um as we said at the beginning we'll try and drip feed those out to you just to um keep you returning back to the podcast um over the coming days um as ever don't forget about our amazon.co.uk.com.ca links and to follow us on facebook twitter iTunes, Google+, Plus, YouTube, and then this new thing that we've got, Patreon. Um, it's a thing where you can like give us money and stuff because we're awesome and we've been doing this for free forever. Um, and uh, it'll help us be even better for even longer. Absolutely. Um, it's going to fund a few specific things like um, having transcriptions of every episode um, which we've been doing actually for the last few months. Yeah. Um, they're running about a week behind at the moment, but as of next, uh, when we come back in September, we're aiming to have the transcription of every episode up with the episode as it goes out on Monday. And we need your support to do that through Patreon. But if we get enough money to do that, then there's other things we can do. We can help uh, support Chris and I to continue doing this work, which we've, as he said, been doing free for five or six years now. And we want to keep doing it. But the bigger and more complex this project gets, the more demands are, there are on our time. Exactly. And, you know, and the bigger the demands on our time in other areas get, the more difficult it is to f squeeze the time into your diary for the RSP. Yeah, and, and the bigger so. my children get, the more food they're eating as well. So I, you know, I'm I was happy to survive on plain rice, but they're less so. Yeah. So it's patreon.com backslash project rs and we would appreciate it and thank you warmly if you have already done so or are considering doing so now next week there's an interview that david recorded and um, with james capallo um, of university college cork and it's about minority religions in the secret police archives so that sounds quite an exciting interview it is an exciting interview so do join us next week for that thanks for listening